We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 14 as we begin tonight. Tonight we're going to begin with some scripture and end with some scripture. And in between that, we're going to have a little bit of history. And um, you don't normally think of coming to church get a history lesson. But I, I just think it helps to kind of understand the uh, history of how our Bible came into existence. And we won't spend a lot of time on it, but, but I think it, it's worth mentioning, worth thinking about. This is a subject uh, that you could spend an unlimited amount of time studying and never really ex- uh, exhaust all there is to know about it. Matter of fact, we have, uh, in our bookstore, we have probably six or eight books, maybe more, devoted just to the subject of, of the Bible and how we got our Bible and why we use the Bible that we use and the war against uh, the Word of God. I mean, so you, if you have an interest, you know, I think, it's, I think it's important that we, I felt at this time in our life as a church, it was important to talk about this. Um, we've taught about it in classes before, but never in a church setting. But I thought it important to do it. But um, if, if you if you are so inclined, there's a lot of good stuff over there, other places you can find to read about this subject. So we're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I invite you to stand with us tonight for the reading of the scripture. You know, Paul, in this first epistle to the Corinthian church, dealt with a lot of issues, underlying issues, and issues that were uh, on the that they were going through as a church, a congregation, there was a lot of confusion. And a lot of confusion about spiritual gifts. He dealt with the matter of, of speaking in languages. Tongues in the Bible was not just a gibberish. It was actually a language. And it was a spiritual gift. They didn't have the Bible. And, and so Paul himself said that uh, he, you know, he, he said, I'd, but he also said, I'd rather speak, t- you know, uh, Rather than speak thousands of words in a language people don't understand, I'd rather speak ten words and people can't understand. All that's in the context of the confusion and the trouble in the church. But if you look with me in verse uh, four, uh, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verse 7, he says, And even things without life-giving sound, whether pipe or harp, when 1 Corinthians 14, 7, even things like a musical instrument, they, don't, they, they make a sound, but things without life-giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? How are they going to communicate a message if there's no distinction? And in verse 8 he says, For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? And of course, um, my mind goes back to the Old Testament when the children of Israel were were moving and marching and, and battling against uh, the war, uh, various wars they were involved in, that that's how they'd communicate is through a trumpet. Well, what if the trumpet's not giving a certain sound? Then how do you know whether to retreat or charge? You know, if you don't get the right signal, it could be a bad, a bad scenario. And so he's talking about the importance there of being clearly understood. And then if you look over in verse 33 of chapter 14, he says, For God is not the author of confusion. But of peace, as in all churches of the saints. God is not the author of confusion, but God is the author of peace. Now, I start, start with that because I think the reasoning, I think the, the rationale 
that a God who is so concerned about preciseness, about precision, about accuracy, about understanding, why would a God who so clearly wants that for his churches be okay with having hundreds of different Bibles in the English language? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. That does not even agree with what we know about God. God is, God is not into confusion. God is into peace. Imagine getting up and speaking from a pulpit. And, we, and you've probably experienced this. Some of you probably being in a church somewhere, sitting in a Sunday school class, and someone's reading from different versions of the Bible. Everybody's got a different version of the Bible. I've never been in that setting myself personally, but other people in our church have. And it's nothing but confusion. So... Tonight, we'll start with that, and we're going to talk about our, our King James Bible. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We pray that you'd bless as we study. Give us strength. Help me, Lord, to have clarity of mind and the ability to communicate, Lord, things that will just help us understand and appreciate the Bible that we have and the war that's against the Word of God. We pray for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, just to review just a little bit, last time we, we learned that there are basically two streams or families of texts from which all Bibles have their origin. There's the Alexandrian text coming out of Egypt, and there was a traditional text coming out of Antioch of Syria. And from these two basic families or streams of texts, all these hundreds and hundreds of translations of the Bible have come. And if you have the wrong text, you're going to have the wrong, the wrong uh, result. I, I think about the scripture where Jesus said, a, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. So if you have a, if you have a corrupt text, you're not going to have a good translation. If you're, going to have, if you're going to have a good translation, it needs to begin with a good text. And so there's several key events, several key men, and different translations, some from even corrupt texts, that eventually led to the preparation for us getting our King James Bible. I'm going to mention a few names. The first one is John Wycliffe. Most of you are familiar with the name of John Wycliffe. He lived in the 14th century, a time known as the Dark Ages. And he was called the Morning Star of the Reformation. It's really important to remember in the context of 1611, when our Bible was finished, what was taking place in Europe, England in particular. And John Wycliffe was a part of that. And from 1380 to 1382, he produced the first complete English Bible. Now that was even before the received text of the Greek language was complete. So he knew, Wycliffe was a brilliant man, he knew no Hebrew, he knew no Greek, he relied on a corrupt Bible, Jerome's uh, Latin Vulgate. But even though this Bible that Wycliffe produced was not in the line of pure text, (coughs) it was in the English language. And what it did was, it created a hunger in the lives of English-speaking people in Europe for their own Bible. Because at that time, people were kept in the dark. That's why it's called the Dark Ages. The Catholic, the Catholic religion controlled the, the government, controlled Rome, Rome controlled the world, basically. 
and they suppressed people, and they did not want people to understand the Bible. They did not want people to have the Word of God in their language. They wanted them to take the clergy's word for it. So anyway, Wycliffe came up, translated the first English Bible. And these, all these Bibles were very expensive. They had to be hand-copied. And it, w- it has been written, one person said, that you could expect to pay a load of hay for the privilege of borrowing one of Wycliffe's Bibles for an hour. <coughs> a whole load of hay just to have the Bible to read for an hour. Very expensive. And the Catholic Church, as you can imagine, greatly opposed this new work. A number of Wycliffe's friends were captured by the Catholic religious people, burned at the stake with copies of his Bible tied around their neck. And Wycliffe died of a stroke. But he was so hated, you've probably heard this before, that 44 years after his death, the Catholics dug up his bones and burned them and scattered the ashes in the River Swift. They hated that man for giving us, for giving people an English Bible. Now, it wasn't a pure Bible. It wasn't a good Bible, but it was, it was a Bible. The next name I want to mention is a fellow by the name of Erasmus. Desiderius Erasmus. He lived in the 15th century. He lived in Holland. He was a brilliant man called the intellectual giant of the Reformation. The Reformation has to do not just with religion. It's a part of that. The great uh, Reformation or the Protestant Reformation where they people began to pull out of the Catholic religion. And a part of that was because they were getting the Bible. They could read the Bible. They could understand the error of the Catholic religion. But part of it was also a political reformation that will eventually lead to England pulling away from the Catholic state church. And so Erasmus lived in the 15th century, and he wanted to see, his passion was to see the Bible published in every language. In his Greek New Testament, the New Testament, the entire New Testament, in Greek, was published in 1516, and eventually all the major languages had translations from that Greek. Now, there were revisions made to that Greek text. One by name of, man by the name of Robert Stevens, we would say, Roberto Stephanus, and Stephanos, Stephanos made a revision to Erasmus's Greek New Testament that became known as the Textus Receptus, the received text from which our King James Bible, uh, the, the, our King James Bible, the New Testament was translated. Erasmus was a great, a great part of that. The, a third name I want to mention is William Tyndale. All these men uh, had a great influence in us getting our Bible. Uh, when Erasmus was translating and publishing his Greek New Testament in Holland, there was another key figure, William Tyndale, emerging in England. William Tyndale was fluent in seven languages. Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, Dutch, and English. And Tyndale began translating the English Bible in 1524. The Greek New Testament of Erasmus was the means of giving the New Testament, as far as the New Testament was concerned, English readers a New Testament translated from the Greek. So William Tyndale is a key figure and especially using Erasmus's material to come up with a, translate that into the English language. 
And um, Tyndale was arrested. Um, before he could complete the work he was doing, the Old Testament. But he continued his work, even while he was in prison. But this New Testament that Tyndale was producing covered England. And while Tyndale is making an English version of the Bible in, in England, Martin Luther was doing the same thing in Germany. And as common people started reading the Bible, this Reformation began to take root because people were getting the Word of God. The, the opposition of the Catholic Church forced Tyndale to leave England and to go to Germany. And it was there that his New Testament was actually printed in Germany. And uh, smugglers would take Tyndale's Bibles. He was from England, but he's He's relocated to Germany. Smugglers would take Tyndale's Bibles into England. There was a death penalty imposed on anyone that was bringing those English Bibles into England. A sad story, really. In 1535, Tyndale's closest friend betrayed him. and He was imprisoned in a dungeon for 18 months. And in 1536, Tyndale was brought to the stake, strangled, and burned at the stake. Just before he died, he uttered these words, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And eventually that would happen. All these things are leading up to the King James Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. And every time I read this or study it or talk about it, it just reminds me of how much we ought to appreciate our Bibles. After William Tyndale died, a year after he died, a man by the name of Miles Coverdale produced the first complete printed English Bible. Complete printed English Bible. Now, the Bible was translated, much of it, from the German and Latin, not from the original languages. So it's not, it's not what we would want, but it's, it's an English Bible. And it never really enjoyed widespread acceptance because Tyndale's New Testament was so popular. After the Coverdale Bible, there was the Matthews Bible. Uh, two years after Coverdale's Bible came out, a man by the name of uh, John Rogers, his pen name was Thomas Matthew, produced a new translation, the Matthew Bible, printed in 1537. Matthew's Bible was unique because it contained a lot of marginal notes uh, about different things. It's sometimes called the wife beater's Bible. How many of y'all have never heard that phrase before, the wife beater's Bible? The reason it was called the wife beater's Bible because in 1 Peter, Matthew's put this note in there about wives being submissive. Here's the quote. If she be not obedient and helpful to him, he endeavoreth to beat the fear of God into her head, that thereby she may be compelled to learn her duty and do it. <laughs> I used to have one of those Bibles. My wife took it away from me. <laughs> All these Bibles are in succession leading up to. The next, the next Bible is called the Great Bible. Henry VIII ruled England 1509 to 1547, and he 
broke. He was, he was the king, the monarch, that broke with, with the church of Rome in 1534. He asked for another English translation. Miles Coverdale, who had already did another translation, would be the editor of this new translation, published in 1539. It was called the Great Bible because of its size. The Bible was 16 and a half inches by 11 inches, a big Bible. The underlying texts were Tyndale's translation, the Latin Vulgate, and other German translations. This was the first English Bible with the books placed in the order that we have in our King James Bible today. It was ordered by the king to be placed in every church in England and chained to some piece of furniture in the church so people couldn't steal it. It was sometimes called the chained Bible, the, the great Bible. In 1533, uh, the first monarch, I think, of England that was a, a woman, uh, Queen Mary came to the English throne, 1533. She was also called Bloody Mary. Maybe you've heard that, that name before. Not a drink that you would order, but someone in history. Queen Mary attempted to reverse the Reformation taking place. She was a strong Catholic. She wanted to reverse the direction that England was going politically from the Catholic religion. She wanted to go back into that direction. And so she began a great persecution. The man who translated the Matthews Bible, John Rogers, was the first martyr under Bloody Mary, the Queen of England. Now this is significant because because of her intense persecution, many Protestants were leaving England. And they were going to Geneva, Switzerland. That became like a haven for these persecuted people to come. And many of those people wanted a new English translation of the Bible, entirely translated out of the original tongues, the original languages. And there, the Geneva Bible was translated. Geneva, because it came from Geneva, Switzerland, and it found great acceptance. It was the first English Bible to use verse divisions like we have in our Bible today. That, was, that Bible was translated in Switzerland called the Geneva Bible. But because of the popularity of the Geneva Bible, the clergy, the established clergy in England, countered with their own translation called the Bishop's Bible. By the way, if y'all were here back when... Uh, Jewel Smith was here many, many years ago. He had, just for the record of you, I mentioned this before, but he had a display across the front of the auditorium, and he had, I think he had one of each one of these Bibles, actual Bibles in, in uh, that display. It was an amazing thing to see. And um, so the Bishop's Bible was published in 1568, but it, didn't, it wasn't really a very popular Bible. It didn't replace the, the Geneva Bible. So that brings us <coughs> to the next big step. All along this time, there's this great turmoil in Europe and in England particularly about the Protestant Reformation. The Catholics had ruled ruthlessly up until this time. And the common man was restricted from having access to the Bible. But with these new English Bibles coming out, there's just a revival of hunger and a desire for truth. 
and great persecution is going on at the same time. In 1558, Elizabeth became the Queen of England, and she was a strong Protestant. And the yoke of Catholicism really finally began to be broken. When Queen Elizabeth died in 1603, the person who next in line for the throne was James, the King of Scotland. And he moved from Scotland and came to England where he would rule King James. And uh, that was in 1603. There was a meeting in January of 1604 in Hampton Court. A lot of, a lot of things were being discussed about the future of the country. And there was a Pur- Puritan preacher there who made this request of the newly uh, seated King James. I'm going to read the exact request. That a translation be made of the whole Bible as consonant as can be to the original Hebrew and Greek, and this be set out and printed without any marginal notes and only to be used in all churches in England in time of divine service. So this was a quest made in this meeting in Hampton Court in January for another English Bible, specifically, though, from the original Hebrew and Greek. And King James took that seriously. You know, King James was not a translator. I was discussing this with someone not too awful long ago, and he was saying, do you really think King James could be trusted as a translator because he has all these different moral issues? King James was not the translator. King James was the king of England. But he began to select a committee that would work on this new translation. And by July of 1604, 54 men were selected. And I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about this tonight. To be a part of this translation project. Now, I, don't, I haven't read the story on all the translators. I'm going to give you just a brief introduction to several of them. One of them's name was Sir Lancelot Andrews. And we're talking about the 54 men that would translate this new, new translation in the English language. Sir Lancelot Andrews mastered 15 languages in his lifetime. William Bedwell is another translator, and he was a linguist, linguist that edited, he was so, such a linguist that he edited an Arabic and a Persian dictionary. George Abbott, another one, entered Oxford College at age 15. Another one, John Spencer, was named Professor of Greek at Oxford College at the age of 19. Now, we're talking about people that are fairly intellectual. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, one of you young people think about being in charge. Think about you being in charge, being a professor of Greek at the age of 19 on a college level. John Boyes could read Hebrew by the age of five and could write Hebrew by the age of six. Lawrence Chaderton was a scholar in Greek, Hebrew, Latin, French, Spanish, and Italian. 
Now, there's just six of them. There are 54 of them. I'm, I'm, they're, they're, you, you know, there's your brilliant people. People who, who were uh, serious about academics, serious about... By the way, just hearing this as a parent, as a grandparent, makes, should make us think about the value, you know, of learning, really. And um, so anyway, they have 54 men that are going to be translators. They took those 54 men and they divided them up into six groups. There were actually six groups, two groups at, at different colleges, uh, Cambridge or Westminster, wherever these, these six different groups were divided up, two at this college, two at this college, two at this college. And um, each group was given a portion of Scripture to translate. Now this is, you know, you may, go, you may have never heard this, you may have heard this, but this in itself is worth, to me, the cost of being here. They, they took, okay, group one was given Genesis to Second Kings. That was their assignment. And group two was given Romans to Jude. And I could go on down because all this is a matter of history. So, so each one of them were given something to translate. Now these are the rules for the translation. Each member of the group would make his own translation. Okay, so if they're, if they're 54 um, men and there's six groups... They weren't all equal. Some of them had like six, some seven, some ten. But there would be an average of nine people in a group. Each member would make his own translation. Okay, so in my group, if my group has nine men, we don't all get together and go verse by verse. So each one of them made their own translation of those books that were assigned to them. Then, after they all finished, they would compare one another's work. And from that, they would have a single translation of that group. Say it's the book of Genesis. And then that book would be sent to the other five groups. So after we finish our translation of the group of, book of Genesis, it's going to go to this group, they're going to go through it, it's going to go to this group, they're going to go through it, this group, they're going to go through it. Then after all that was completed, then the complete Bible was went to a select committee of 12 people, um, two from each group, for a final revision. And then that final revision was gone over another time by two of the most scholarly translators before being complete. So this is how the process would work. Let's imagine there's nine people in your group. Each portion, every verse, every book, every verse, every word was translated word for word nine times in that group. Then all the group met together and they translated it or went over it another time and reviewed it. That's ten times. Then it went to five other groups. That makes fifteen times. And then it went to a group of twelve who went over it again, that makes 16 times, and then it went to the final review, that makes 17 times. That's quite a, quite a thorough system of translation. So that process took um, seven years. Seven years. And the product was the King James Bible that finally went to the printer's. Now, <clears throat> I want to just talk about 
um, maybe concerns or questions are just facts, really. I'm gonna, I won't spend a lot of time on this. But one of the things you may have never noticed or never thought about is the, the and you can see them almost any place you turn, and that's the italics that are used in the Bible. I want you to go with me to Genesis chapter 13, if you would. <clears throat> I'm not sure why I chose this passage, but we'll know when we get there. This is the p- passage of Scripture where Abraham and Lot are going to divide company because they're, they've been down in Egypt, their ca- livestock is multiplied to the point, the land won't contain both of them together. And so let's just look in verse 9, Genesis 13, 9. Let's just, let's just read through this. Is not the whole land before thee? Abraham's talking a lot. Genesis 13, 9. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyselves, I pray thee, from me. If thou will take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And you'll notice if you look at that, the italics in that passage, in, in, right in the, it says uh, in the third line of my Bible, thou wilt take is in italics. And then about a couple of lines down further, thou depart is in italics. Now, now what, are the word, what do the italics mean? <clears throat> the italics are words that were not in the Hebrew language. But they were added to sort of complete the sense without altering the message. You could understand it, really. In the Hebrew, you could understand it. And in the English, you could understand it without them. Look, let's just look in verse 9. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. The left hand, then I will go to the right. The, to the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, you could understand that without the italics. They added the italics, really, to give a sense without changing the Hebrew translation at all. Now, one of the amazing things about the authorized version, the King James Version, is they had enough integrity and honesty to say, we've made these, we're not changing, we're not even adding to the words, we're just inserting this to help the sense of it. Now, I would, I'm not going to ask this. I would, I'm tempted to ask, how many people have been reading your Bible for a lot of years and you never even noticed it had italics in it? Because it's possible. But, but it doesn't change anything about it. The difference in that in the modern translations is they change everything and they don't even have enough integrity to tell you what they're doing. So, um, so just a thought really about the italics in case you ever wonder why they're in there. Another thing, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I want to mention it again. Because I'm a strong believer in the King James Bible. I believe it is the inspired, preserved Word of God. Um, but there are some extreme views on inspiration that people who love the King James, and they actually believe that the King James Bible itself can correct the original languages. Like it can correct the Greek or the Hebrew. And, but the Bible, I don't think there's any, there, there's just no, that's not uh, logical to me, and, and I have a lot of things I could say about that. They, they actually believe the King James is superior to the Greek text. Well, if that's true, then nobody else in the world can have the Word of God other than the English-speaking people, because what about a person in Germany? What about a person in Mexico? What about a person, you know, that speaks a different language? You follow what I'm saying? And so that's an extreme view 
about um, inspiration. You know, in case you've never done it, there's... Um, I'm going to give you an example of something. Just, you could, there are many resources where you could look at how big a deal this is by just looking at the text. I'm going to give you a few examples. We're not going to take the time to even look at it up in the Bible, but just listen carefully. I'm going to give you, I'm going to read you a verse from Matthew 9, 13, where Jesus said, For I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. <clears throat> this is what the New International Version says. For I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The whole the phrase to repentance is left out. Most all the modern translations translate it that way. Jesus said in Matthew 19, Why callest thou me good? This is what the NIV says. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's a big difference between why callest thou me good and why do you ask me about what is good? In Luke 2.33, the King James says, And Joseph and his mother. The NIV says the child's father and mother. Joseph was not the child's father. God is the, God is the father of Jesus. Luke 4.4 4 says in the King James, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The NIV says man does not live on bread alone. John 6, 47 says, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. The NIV says, He who believes has everlasting life. Not he that believeth on me. We could go on with these kind of things all night long. Thousands of them. Colossians 1 in the King James says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. The modern translations say, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of his sins, leaving out through his blood. Here's a great one. 1 Timothy 3.16 in our Bible says, God was manifest in the flesh. The NIV says, he appeared in a body. God was manifest in the flesh is the incarnation, the deity of Christ. He appeared in a body. 1 John 4, 3 says, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. The NIV says, But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Nothing about it is come in the flesh. These are not just, these are not just changes for the convenience of making it easier to read. They're changes that change the doctrine of the Bible. <clears throat> People ask about the New King James because the New King James, really the New King James has a better record of translation than these other modern versions. I read recently the stated purpose of the um, publishers who published the New King James in 1979. Its stated purpose was to stay true to the original translators but convey it to the 20th century vocabulary. In other words, we're just going to we're going to keep true to the translators, but we're going to change the language to bring it up to our modern vernacular. But that's not true. In Matthew seven, for instance, where Jesus said, "Straight is the way and narrow is the gate," Jesus said, "Straight, S-T-R-A-T, straight is the way and narrow is the gate." The New King James says, "Narrow is the gate and difficult." It substituted difficult for straight, but straight and difficult are not the same thing. 
Um, in Genesis 2-7, the King James says, God breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. The New King James says man became a living being. There's a difference in a soul and a being. A dog and a cat has a, is a being, but they don't have a soul. I'm just telling you, people say, well, it's, it's all the same. No, it's not all the same. Things that are different are not the same. So, <clears throat> if you believe, if you believe, or you're on board, or you agree with, or what, what I'm saying and what we're teaching, and, and most all of you would, maybe all of you do, you're in a minority. You're in this country, in this, in this, you're a minority. Among Baptist churches, even, you're in a minority. And, um, and one of the questions, I want, to have, I want to end with this tonight, is why change? I mean, that, that's a question to me worth asking. If, you may not have been here on the first night when we introduced this series, but there are many hundreds, many hundreds of English translations. Why? Why? And some people say, well, it's so we make the Bible easier to read. <laughs> well, for one thing, maybe we just need to study more. You know, we're not reading, you know, we're not reading a nursery rhyme. We're not trying to read, you know, we're reading the Word of God. Maybe we, maybe we just need to study a little more. But when it comes to something as serious as the Bible, convenience should not be our first consideration. It ought to be that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, there's another thing probably could be said, and I will, I'll just say it. Another reason we have so many of them is because it's profitable. You know, if you come up with a translation that people will buy, you make money. Because there's only one of these Bibles that is not copyrighted. That one right there. Others, they keep coming out the Bible of the Month Club because they can sell them. They make him more money. <clears throat> That's what new, newer versions do. I personally believe that, and let's go to one last scripture, Proverbs chapter 24. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 24, and you're probably sitting here thinking, I wish you would have said this about this subject, and I apologize. There's so much could be said, and... Uh, <clears throat> but I believe this is a part of the problem, and I'm going to close with this. Proverbs 24, 21. My son, fear thou the Lord and the king. Fear the Lord and the king. And meddle not with them that are given to change. For their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knoweth the ruin of them both. Respect God, fear God, and fear those in authority. Have a respect for those in authority. And I think, I think on this, right, immediately we can both, we can all agree that there's a lack of that in our culture, in our world today, a fear of God and a fear of authority. But then he's, and he gives a warning there, meddle not with them that are given to change, that are always wanting to change. Um... Now, this, that doesn't mean every change is bad, right? I mean, that's not talking about changing from incandescent bulbs to LEDs. 
That's not talking about changing from pews to chairs, although some people would think that's a, a great compromise. It's not talking about changing from wide ties to narrow ties, right? Every change is not wrong, right? It's not wrong to have, some, it's not wrong to have a sound system. These are changes. It's not, these things are not wrong. You know, people preach against some of this stuff. It's not, I don't think it's wrong. Technology's not wrong. You, a person uses a tablet. I don't use a tablet, you know, to preach. I use my Bible. But if a person uses a tablet, I don't see a thing wrong with it. I don't preach against it. That's not wrong. This is talking about changing for the sake of change. Just changing because you want it to be different. Meddle not with them that are given to change. And I think that's a part of what's happened. And it's all happened. It's all happened since the early 1900s. We've gone from one Bible to some people estimate as many as 900 Bibles in the English language. Now, why is that? Is it because we're smarter? Is it because we have a greater hunger for God? I don't think so. I think it's because people just want... People have have little less respect for God and and his word and I, and change changes some things some changes are good right I'm not saying they're spiritual I'm just saying they're not bad I can distinctly remember a conversation I had sitting at our dining room table with our family at some meal time and some holiday and they were all here and and they're they're putting trying to put pressure on me to start sending texts everybody's doing it you can't live without it i said i've lived fine without it <laughs> but finally i caved and you know what it's a good thing I, I, I communicate. I'm just saying, change is sometimes hard, but all changes are not bad, right? That's not necessarily bad. But there's so many changes going on, and I think the Bible issue is one of them. I, and I think it's in worship changing. I'm not getting off the point. This is a part of the point. I think when you begin to trifle with the Word of God, when you when you begin to make worship more man-centered than God-centered emphasize being casual, being entertaining, rather than being respectful and sacred, all those things I think are unhealthy changes. And most of the most people who want to just have a dumbing down of truth and a casualness about coming before God, to me, I think they're trifling with something very dangerous. I do. I don't think most I don't think most people who think, man, I wish I could just feel comfortable coming to church with cutoffs and flip-flops. I don't think they do that because they think that God would be more pleased and they have a hunger for pleasing God and coming before a holy God with humility. I don't think they think that at all. You know what they think? I would like that myself. And I think at the root of that is why we have all these different Bibles. Just wanting to change. Changing the Bible for the sake of convenience is a dangerous thing. And, as I said earlier, (coughs) just that statement is offensive to some people. That position is offensive to some people. 
By the way, I'll give you another. I mean, there, you know, people, people would come back and say, well, do you think, do you think only the King James, a person could only be saved because they used the King James Bible? No, I don't believe that. I, I, you know, people have been saved without a Bible. Somebody just telling them the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. I mean, you know, the thief on the cross got saved without a King James Bible, right? But, so people take these views to extremes. But I think this is one of the most important issues that a church has to deal with. And we've never had any problem with it here. We've never had any people try to get us to go to different versions or, or attack us because of this version. But I'm telling you, it, I think it's healthy. I'm going to stop at that. I think it's healthy for us to have at least some idea of why we have the Bible we have and why we use the Bible we use. It's not just because we're old-fashioned. It's not just because we don't want to change. There's, there are theological reasons. There are, I believe, intellectual reasons and academic reasons and valid reasons. So... I would, I would urge parents and I would urge children that if you ever get around somebody or think, you know, well, it just say, they, you know, my friends, they all use the NIV or they all use this and they love God. I mean, they, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that. But you ought to think long and hard about changing the Word of God. You know what I'm saying? I'm not... I'm not trying to be a dictator. I'm just telling you, you're talking about the Word of God. And, and your convenience and my convenience and my preferences all, all pale in comparison is nothing when you're talking about the Word of God. Amen?